Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. Hi everyone! I have a guest today, Lauren Warnamende, a writing friend and author. Lauren is in the midst of publishing a book series, Daughter of Arden, which retells the fairy tale Maid Maline. We'll discuss the first book of the series, Exile. The second book, Wandering, has been released since we recorded this episode, so go ahead and buy the bundle because Exile leaves on a note of suspense and you'll want to know what happens next as soon as possible. Besides being an author, Lauren is a wife and homeschool mom of three. She's the author of two short stories and The Lost Tales of Sir Galahad, released by the Rabbit Room Press. As a retailer of fairy tales, Lauren has the rare gift of developing unique, believable, and multi-layered characters and relationships. She is also able to weave scriptural images into her work with grace and beauty. Most importantly, Lauren has followed what I argue is the most important rule of fairy tale retellings, never miss an opportunity to put your heroine in a fancy dress. Here's our discussion about how Lauren tackled her retelling of Maid Maline. Great. Hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to hear more about your own story and then how that um, works into your book, Exile, which is so beautiful. I, mean, I think more and more people are finding it and enjoying it since it came out last fall. Yeah, it's been amazing to just see it, you know, catching, getting a little traction, you know. Yeah, and the next one coming out as well. So especially with the um, the focus of this podcast, I wanted to start out with your relationship with scripture itself, how, how you came to know it and how you came to love it. Yeah, I was thinking about this, um, and I realized I don't think I know a time that the Bible and scripture hasn't, hasn't been a part of my life. Um, my family, both my parents were Bible college, you know, had gone to a Bible college. Um, but they had both been raised in very strongly Christian homes. And my mom, in fact, her parents, her father was actually, uh, the Dean at the Bible college that she and my dad went to and had been a pastor. And, you know, it it just keeps going back in time. So I've been really blessed with generations of not just Christians, but Christians who took the Bible really seriously. And not seriously in a legalistic way, but in this is God's word and it's living and active. The older I get, the more I realize what a heritage that is. Probably for me, besides knowing, you know, Bible stories growing up and <laughs> all the different stories that you're you you gradually get to know and then you, you the older you get you find out oh wait there's a lot more to this story than i thought there was and then you're like wait what what is this story about um and some of those i still ask the questions but it it gets more amazing each time i was probably let's see i think it was my 10th or 11th grade year my dad gave my sister and i a reading challenge for the year to read through the bible in a year and so we did that one year and then he actually did it again the next year with an even better bonus at the end of the year. So that was that was my first time of actually going through the whole of the Bible uh, in reading. And then I went to 
a Bible college, got a Bible degree along with my education degree. And that required reading through more, studying more, so looking more at uh, how you actually study the Bible inductively or deductively, different ways of studying the Bible. Um, so it's just been, you know, besides, it hasn't been an academic thing all my life. Um, it, you know, I definitely learned more of how to, to approach it academically. But in more recent years, I've also really appreciated learning more about the genres that are in, used in scripture and, and how it just opens up the mysteries of, of, of the Bible um, through the different genres, like reading it from a literary perspective as well as a theological or spiritual perspective. Yeah, definitely makes sense. So I know those terms, thankfully. I'm I'm also so blessed with a legacy of, of faith and um, people who loved God's word, which yeah, as you said, it's such a blessing, like just the the generations of of people praying. I was thinking about that recently, people praying for me, like even before there was a possibility of me being born, um, which is beautiful. So can you just give a brief description of, of what you said about inductive deductive oh, for anyone right. who doesn't know those yes. terms? So inductive Bible study is where you basically, you take the, the, the passage and whatever translation you're using, and you start with just the words themselves. You start looking for things like, uh, who are the people that are, you know, talked about through the passage? What, how many people are there? Um, what are positional statements, uh, prepositions, uh, locations, things like that. Um, what are uh, time frames, you know, and then you just start, you, you go with the bare bones and just start marking things up. It's really fun when you get a bunch of colored pencils or something like that, or I had to do charts in college. And you, you, you're, you're looking just at the words themselves and the, the structure from the bare bones starting at the bottom, and you gradually work yourself outward. So you, you start with the, the immediate words, but you work out to phrases and paragraphs and you know, you keep moving outward and, and starting to make connections to how does this relate to that? And and finally, you get to a point where you're like, okay, now I'm ready to go and look at a commentary and see what somebody else has to say about this. So that's, it's it's the starting the bare bones and moving outward, as opposed to a deductive, which is more of where you would start, hey, here's a commentary, here's what this person had to say about it. Um, let's take all these things, and then we'll eventually go to the passage. Or you take a topic and find where it's talked about in the Bible. Right. Like what does scripture say about marriage? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I remember um, I started inductive study. So my mom had always taught that way, which was great. And I learned a little bit of it growing up, but just, I, I wasn't in her Bible study because I was a kid and it was the women's Bible study. But then I began an intervarsity Bible study in college and we were going through, let's see, what is the I always get the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000 mixed up, but like Mark 4, when right. when they all sit down on the green grass, like by the lake, and looking inductively, be like, wait a minute, green grass, and seeing that passage tie back to Psalm 23, which I had never seen before. Oh, it's just like, oh my goodness. Yeah, it's so cool. So out of out of really good scriptural teaching and um, and loving the word, and also, I mean, life itself and your love of stories, you spun a story that really honors scripture and um, and is so beautiful. So I wanted to go through how you approach the fairy tale retelling of Maid Malene um, from, I think it was Grimm's, your source text? Yes. Yeah. I'm not actually sure of another variant. Um, but so you took that fairy tale and then you told a bigger story, you developed the characters, you created this whole world, which is amazing. I think you said your husband was really 
into helping with like the politics, the geography. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so cool. So I wanted to begin with the father figure because the father figure of the tale is, is evil. He's, he's angry with his daughter because she won't marry the man he wants her to marry. So he locks her up in a tower for seven years with no light. (laughs) Like I was reading the tale, like, Ooh, that's pretty awful. And they have not, they had nothing to do but lament and complain in there. She and her maid. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, so tell me how you approach the father figure, especially referencing scripture. Yeah. Yeah. I've always loved um, the fairy tale made Moline. I grew up on Grimm's fairy tales. That was a, a part, heavy, heavy part of my, uh, my diet growing up. And I always liked that story. But when, when I got to the point where I, I was like, Oh, it'd be fun to do a retelling of this fairy tale because I'd read others that I really enjoyed. And no one had done Made Moline at that point. So when I started, so I was like, oh, I, I would like to do this, but I'm going to switch it up a little bit. And partly because I have a wonderful father. I I also was planning on going at it from primarily Moline's point of view. And I needed her to start at a little, a lesser position of, of um, I don't know what's the right word, uh, goodness, <laughs> whatever. Um, and so she needed to grow. And I thought, well, and, and also I was thinking of teenage girls and I'm like, you know, what often a teenage girl is not really the best, um, the best one to make the decisions of what's best for herself. Uh, whereas for me, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> for me, my experience is my father had a lot of wisdom and, Sometimes I understood it. Sometimes I didn't. Um, and so I, I thought it would be, it made more sense for me. And it was much more of an interesting plot point, even of starting with a father who had wisdom. He wasn't perfect, but he had wisdom and he had his daughter's best interests at heart. So what he wanted to do for her, which sounds horrible. It's like, oh, let's lock your daughter in tower. But then I had to start thinking, okay, what kind of good father would do something like this to his daughter and how you know how would you make that believable but probably even a bigger picture if you're going back going back to you know a biblical understanding of who god is and stuff is is what kind of things does god put in our lives that we look at and we're like what in the world are you thinking this is horrible um and yet it's what's best for us now it was fun to play with a father figure who he's trying to do what's best for his daughter but he's unfortunately not kept a relationship going with her over her years. You know, he's in, in thinking something for her best interest, he has, he has uh, divided himself from her. Um, so that's not how I would consider a God character, but it's very definitely a human fatherly interaction with a, with a daughter. I thought it was really cool because you made it mutual. They both had made the mistake of distance. Like it, it sounds like, he he pushed a little bit, you know, inviting her to council meetings yes. and, and everything. But he was so busy, yes. which is so relatable, you know, of course. And he's a king. And she allowed that as well. And it it made me think about we we do that with God. Yes. He's perfect and he's reaching out to us. But there can be distance because will we get busy and we think we don't need him, especially when life is going really well. So that seems very biblical that there be that distance there, even with the perfect father who is God. Yeah, I, I remember years ago, a point in time where I just felt like God was so far away. And, you know, every time you're trying to pray and trying to talk to him or trying to just relate to him, and he just seems so far away. 
And I read something or, or if something hit me finally at one point and I realized he's not far away. I just had my back to him. <laughs> it's like, Aww, he's been there yeah, the whole time. I just need to turn around. Yeah. Amen. And and going back a little bit to what you said before, he he does discipline us. Like he's so good that no, he doesn't shower us with candy um, or even you know good times or peace all the time. Um, and it it is really hard to be disciplined. It is it is so so difficult. But he's wise enough to do exactly what is needed for for us for us to become like him. I love um, the father figure he made. It's not a, Let's see, I, I did, forgot to bookmark it, but one of the lines you had about affection towards the beginning, I'm trying to keep towards the beginning because right. I don't want to spoil the whole book, but um, about how affection, like infatuation is like pewter, whereas like true love is like gold, um, was just so profound. So, I mean, nice concrete image as well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> writing wise. Yeah, yeah, making that, but um, no, I, I love this father figure and especially I was thinking about fairy tales. Like there's, there's always going to be from uh, the fairy tales course we both took. It's called the lack, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lack, mm-hmm. a problem. And so the lack of the maid Malene tale, you know, the, the central problem uh, to begin with is the relationship with the father, that the father is angry with her and yeah. locks her in the tower in the original tale. And so you were able to spin that in a different way. And when you translated it to the medium of a novel, make it a little bit more realistic that, yes, a a princess, a teenage princess may not be making the smartest decision, the wisest. So, yeah, well, moving on from that. So I want to talk about how you took the princess. It's really fun to see in fairy tale retellings how people develop the central character. In Grimm's version, uh, Malene is, I mean, she's shown to be virtuous. She's stubborn, but... You know, she, she's vindicated um, at the end of the fairy tale, whereas your Moline is very beautiful and spoiled. So can you tell me more about why is she beautiful? Why, you know, why, why did you choose to make her physically attractive as well? Because some people like to, you know, not do that because we don't want to glorify physical beauty too much. Okay. H- how you um, made her. I know I was trying to think back through this because I know it was a, a, a deliberate choice. I think I was a little tired of all the stories, contemporary, more contemporary stories that start off with the, the awkward, ugly, you know, apparently ugly person who has to gradually realize that she's loved and she's beautiful in her own way, which is a very good thing to have. That that's not a bad concept. It just seemed to be used an awful lot. I remember. If we want to name name drop movies, I remember when um when Shrek came out, which I enjoyed the movie thoroughly, and and I kind of liked the twist at the end. Uh, spoilers if no one's seen Shrek from whenever that came. Oh Shrek, yeah. yes, I didn't hear it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, that the the beauty is when you know the the transformation at the end is that she is like Shrek. So the the princess is like Shrek. So the breaking of the spell is she becomes an ogre as opposed to a princess, uh, a beautiful princess. And and it's beautiful for the story, it works. But I couldn't help but think that on one level, that's actually not the true way that God works. Um, and I'm not, I'm talking more than physical beauty, but that God makes things beautiful. And there is such a thing as beauty. And so with Malene, it, it helped to have, obviously, if she's going to be a bit of a spoiled princess at the beginning, um, she needs to have 
uh, good opinion of herself or any higher than needed opinion of herself. And so she is physically beautiful and graceful. But trying to think if there was more, because I, I wanted there to be that, that also that inner transformation that's needed, that even someone who's beautiful has to be inwardly transformed. I was just thinking of that, right? It's, um, I think today we really want to make sure because, you know, self-esteem and, you know, it's really hard to be a young girl and want to, want to be beautiful. You always want to, and you know, you're, no one is ever completely happy with how they look anyway. So I understand authors wanting to have the, the awkward, not physically attractive girl and have her gain confidence. Of course, Mm -hmm. at the same time, physical beauty is not the highest attainment so someone can have it and still you know it doesn't solve every problem it it um you need to grow spiritually so yeah yeah, you need to gain inner beauty and so this is a really good way of playing with that it's like you know yes beautiful princess but i i would not think that a young girl would be in awe of Maline at the beginning of your book mm-hmm. and think, oh, I want to be just like <laughs> I sure hope not. <laughs> like maybe look like her. <laughs> but just just seeing um yeah, just seeing realistically, physical beauty is not the highest thing. Like closeness with God, who you call the mighty mm-hmm. one in, in your book, like that is is what is lovely. That that's where true peace is. Yeah. Because it and in our struggle for anything, that's what we long for, right? We long for peace we long for the satisfaction of gaining whatever it is but that that is our longing for closeness to god yeah. you know yeah. every every good thing beauty and peace and every other thing we would pursue is in him so i wanted to talk about and as soon as i started thinking about it scripturally i got very excited because it was so multi-layered there's so many things but the tower <laughs> the central image <laughs> of this tale and also i mean rapunzel is also a tower story yeah. i'm sure there are other lesser known fairy tales. Um, But as soon as I looked at scripture, so I'm just going to read from Proverbs and Habakkuk on this. Um, So Proverbs 18.10, and this is, I always read in ESV. Mm -hmm. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And then Habakkuk, which uh, we covered, I'm in Bible study fellowship. So we covered Habakkuk. What a sweet book, like an unexpectedly um, loving and tender text. But Habakkuk just, has just voiced his complaint to the Lord because the Lord is going to send the Chaldeans as judgment. And Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So we talked about how it's it's a picture of waiting on the Lord mm-hmm. that is both active and passive because he's going up to the watchtower to wait and watch. Right. And it's just, it's, wow. it's so beautiful. So your tower, it, yeah, isn't that lovely? Yeah. That's Bible study fellowship, not me um, coming up with that <laughs> great insight. <laughs> but um, your tower, so the fa- in the fairy tale, the tower is just like a terrible place. It's dark and they're literally just sitting there for seven years, right. which is a dreadful concept. Um, your tower is not that. So tell me about how that came to life. Right. Well, for one, <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, first of all, you can't survive in a dark black tower for seven years um so one thing i i I did i did shift the timing so you know it was only three years after uh, that seemed a little more manageable um plus you know when you're doing a retelling of a fairy tale you're suddenly asking yourself about all the how how would this happen question so just on a practical level of writing it's like how in the world could you survive in a tower um for three years 
and that required some restructuring of the tower. And thankfully, uh, my husband Craig is a civil engineer, so he helped me structure the tower. Oh, of course. <laughs> It is a very well-constructed tower. It has a lot of good structure to it. It's things like, how would you go to the bathroom and not sure. get sick from that? Um, how would you feed yourself? How would you get water? So it, it created a situation that I had to think through all these details that ended up creating this tower that is in some ways um, a refuge to the characters at the same time externally to those around who it looks like a ruin, it looks like something horrible and dark. And it's kind of interesting. It's been interesting to me. I think some of it was deliberate, but some has for me has grown over time as I as I've edited and written more that it was a place considered a tomb. And and I think in fairy tales, the the idea of the tower, it's it's a it's a death. It's a kind of death. It's a symbol of a death. To those around looking at it and from lean, it was like this is a place of you know, this is a this is a place of death. This is a place where there's no life. What she finds is that it's a place where she can come to life. And so, you know, things like you know, arrow holes or you know, the, the openings are created so that light can come in and feed the the garden that they have in the in the tower, and there's an apple tree, and of course that has all kinds of loaded <laughs> loaded meaning which was, loaded which was, loaded with apples yeah, mm -hmm. yeah which was not deliberate even <laughs> that even even wasn't deliberate from the beginning but um it, it, things just start taking on a lot more meaning as they go which is fascinating to me just just reflections because it, it is so interesting um when you're in a tower it, well they're stuck in there and they can't get out so it's the journey that she goes on in this book is very much a spiritual journey because she's stuck in one place yeah for most of the time. She can't hide from herself. <laughs> she can't, um, you had a great line towards the beginning. She was really irritated and her uh, ladies in waiting weren't around when she wanted them because she wanted to vent her spleen on yes. them, which is a, is a little too relatable, unfortunately, <laughs> um, but <laughs> for me. Um, but yeah, just not having people around who adore you and just, you know, when someone's beautiful, they get stared at. Mm -hmm. So, you know, constantly being aware that you're beautiful and you're the princess yeah. and you wear fancy dresses. Again, we, we can get to fancy dresses yeah, as a, as a bonus. <laughs> but, um, so she's, she's alone with someone, um, who, uh, yeah, someone who does not flatter her. Yes. Yes. Put it that right. way. Her, her handmaid is not, uh, that was an interesting thing too. I will say this, um, mm. the handmaid in the, story it sounds like it's just you know either a younger maid or you would think that this would just be some and and she gets stuck with an old nursemaid <laughs> that was not what she would have chosen <laughs> if she were going to go with someone into the tower no absolutely not but just what she needed because she had no friends yeah. but yeah so it's it's a place of of confronting herself of not being able to escape yeah from herself but also seeking um, seeking the mighty one, which is just lovely how you put that together. It is it is very difficult to develop a character as you did and not have you know not have a switch flip and have a spiritual journey happen in an instant. Like you know what they yeah. they do that sometimes in movies. Like all of a sudden a character's like oh I was evil and now I'm good and like you know go in and do the right thing in the nick of time for the final battle. I see that in like superhero movies yeah. sometimes um, and it it's. Like you, you kind of understand because it's like it's hard to pull off that transformation. But if you don't do it 
right, it just feels so false. Yeah. But if you do do it right, which um, from the beginning, when I first read your manuscripts three years ago, I think it was during COVID. It was. Oh. I was reading it and I was like, man, Lauren is good. Oh, thanks. This is hard to do. This is so inspiring for me. Um, but it also made me think of what you said about a place of life, um, yep. death to life. Um, I was listening to some YouTube lectures on uh, T.S. Eliot given by a, a, a professor. But the big deal of T.S. Eliot's life in poetry was that all he saw was death and decay and corruption in Western society and, and the 20th century. And the wasteland is very much a testament to that, like death. And yet when he became a Christian, he believed in resurrection. Mm -hmm. And his poetry after that is resurrectional. And it, is, it just reminded me like that hope of dead things coming back to life by the power of an all-knowing, all-loving God is transformative for us. Like that changes everything we do and it's glorious. Yeah. Perspective. So. <laughs> that was, that's something that I've been running into lately. It's just that, mm. that realizing that, you know, when we, when we come to Christ, we aren't, we aren't leaving things behind. We're finally seeing things clearly. Yes. Amen. Like everything we would have pursued apart from him is actually, you know, turn, turned around the right way yeah. and directed towards him is, is a good desire. You know, I think it's yeah. what fame, beauty, wealth, pleasure, like the standard temptations, like there, there is a glorified equivalent in being known mm. in him with him. So speaking of resurrection and uh, growth, you mentioned the apple tree and the spring mm -hmm. and the towers. I love how in fairy tales and this in, in retellings, you get like every, every physical, image like that, like a spring or an apple tree, gets these spiritual dimensions to it that runs so deep and yet it's so simple. So I was looking at gardens in scripture and <laughs> the Garden of Eden, there's that lovely garden in the Song of Solomon, there are gardens in Babylon, there's the Garden of Gethsemane, there's the Garden Tomb, there's a Garden City of the New Jerusalem. I don't know if, if I missed any that you would think of. Um, but tell me tell me how that came to life because there's there's not a, just a garden garden in the original tale. Right. There's a nettle plant. Yes. Nettles. So. Yeah. Yeah. The nettles, they'll, they'll come into wandering into the second book. Well, you know, it's funny. Once again, it started with a basic, well, they have to have a way to eat and they kind of need sustainable food. So, <laughs> so there has to be some way to have some sort of garden. So you know, it's funny how you, you start with these very basic things and, and they just keep on taking on. You realize how, what you've kind of tapped into that you didn't realize you tapped into. And, and also the apple tree, it started with, you know, there's this prophecy and in it, there's this, this lone barren tree that bears fruit. And so that created, okay, there's this legend from the, the, the world that she lives in, from her kingdom, that a king and his men had been trapped on this, this rock, Bannet Rock, and they had prayed for deliverance and God had provided this spring and, and a grove of apple trees. And so when the tower is built on that spot, all the trees are taken except for one. But they haven't borne fruit for as long as Melina has been alive. And so she, one of, one of the ideas I had early on was, I think, you know, she needs some sort of gift that she's maybe not familiar with for herself. But it's, it's she's very good at, at cultivating uh, plants. And, and I kind of chose that because... I'm not great at it, but I love it. I love gardeners. I, I love finding out about gardens and learning about them and having my own little pots. I've, I've relegated myself to just 
plant pots of various types because I can't get onto a whole garden. Um, and so I wanted her to be really good at it. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. Very respectable to give a character something that you've always yes, wanted, yes, I think. That's yes. why we're writers, right? I mean, one of the major reasons is we, right. we can get everything that we want. Yeah, I mean, other yes, things too. That, that, you know, beautiful and, you know, all the, all the, or extreme beauty, much more than, you know, all these kind of things. But uh, yeah, so she, she starts cultivating this tree and that, you know, comes into the story as well. Um, but it it was interesting that later, you know, as years later, as I'm going back through the editing and sort of teasing that out more, it's like, how do I show more of her uh, desire for growth and, and gardens and knowing, knowing plants and things? So I tried to pull that out a little more. And that led to her relationship, minimal relationship with the previous, with the old head gardener of the castle, um, who gives her some input that comes back to her later as she's as she's in the tower. Absolutely. Well, I think I remember talking about that with you because so I was a little concerned in the beginning. I could see the unfolding story and how beautifully everything turns out. Well, sort of. I mean, there's a cliffhanger, but, you, you know, it, <laughs> in the, the tale, um, I was worried that an impatient reader might not give Melina a chance. <laughs> yes. they would, you know, they would do they just get fed up. So that was part of her development in the beginning, that she had this aptitude for the patience and the gentleness that gardening requires. I think some of those changes came because of your feedback. <laughs> oh, happy to hear that. Hope it was Yes, it was helpful. helpful. Yeah, because it's definitely one of those. It's like, I don't want people to be turned off by this girl completely. I mean, you know, they've got to hang in with the, hang in with the, the bit of the spoiled brat and give her hope. Um, but she likes gardens. You know, this is a good thing. <laughs> And just the sympathy of, um, you know, the, the hook of like, well, what's going to happen to this girl? Like, especially right. you can kind of tell, and again, maybe I'm extrapolating because I, I have read the full, but you can you can tell that this is a girl who is not going to handle a, a testing, a time of testing mm -hmm. well, at least at first. Like, she's not prepared yeah. yet. Yeah. So she has to, yeah, she has to get prepared. But yeah, that's that's the fun of the transformation and seeing that. So, all right, I had one bonus question yeah, if you're up sure. for it. I'm going to say in the beginning, uh, so you never miss an opportunity when the story allows for it to put Meline in a fancy dress, <laughs> which is really important in fairy tale retellings. So can you just tell me how you had fun with that? I liked pulling in, you know, I figured, okay, a princess is going to have access to materials that the average person does not have. So she can try on the outfits from another country, you know, the silk from Thrushan silk, we call it, and um, try on different outfits and colors. And then when she has to choose her gown that she's going to wear to the tower, it has to be the most elaborate thing she can come up with, because this is going to make a statement to her father. Um, <laughs> which actually, the material ends up being important for the story. Later on, yeah, which too, right? Actually, yeah. I just, I'm like, oh, I haven't thought about that. Because... Yeah. Anyway, that's kind of cool. <laughs> Symbolically. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You're just, it, you're writing it, but you weren't like, ah, oh, yes, I need a symbol of this. Or maybe you were at no, some point, right. which is fine. You're discovering it just layers, layers and dimensions. And other people are, that's the fun of a story. It's like, it's, it's a thing in itself too. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, yeah. I think one of the other things with, with the clothes and having her dressing up and things, I'm, I like to dress up. I'm, I like when I love 
looking at someone who is well-dressed. It's just a beautiful thing to see. But my personal taste is much more relaxed. I, you know, if I don't have to, I'm not going to be going and putting on fancy dresses most of the time. So to have a character and say, hey, she likes it. She wants to get dressed up. Um, it, it made it a fun for uh, having that aspect of, of, of the story. The vicarious pleasure. I was just thinking about that because, yeah, I... I like getting dressed up, but I'm always afraid I'll like spill something on myself, or, you know, like like ruin my outfit. <laughs> so, like, there's a stress there. But when you're reading a book where someone's dressing beautifully all the time, yeah. you enjoy it, and you don't have that extra stress attached. So, yeah, that's a great point. It's just just a way to give give your readers some pleasure, yes. which you definitely did. You know, and that makes me think of um, how many times. One thing I love about some good books that I've read uh, where. And I think this is something that this kind of goes back to Maline's character or, um, you know, the fact that she is physically beautiful, that there is something about beauty. And you see it in like Tolkien's descriptions of women or things in, in Lord of the Rings, um, C.S. Lewis. I mean, these are the classics, but uh, Elizabeth Googe would be another one where they are way, the way they describe people and characters where there's this transcendent beauty that comes through and it's, it's not just the physical form of the person. It's, it's something that you just long for. It makes you long for in their, in their, um, in their presence. And I, I don't think I did that perfectly or anything like that, but it is something that I wanted to tap into in my writing is to have that. It's not just, you don't have the the need to dig into the dirt and the grime. There's that transcendent beauty needs to come through in some way. That's such a good a good way of putting it because yeah, the beauty is magnetic. It it draws us. We long for it because when you know at, in the end, like ugliness comes from sin. So ultimate glorious beauty is what we're intended for, and that's what God has. It gets all mixed up. I mean, this is <laughs> um, so one of the things in my degree I didn't go deeply into is a bit abstract for me was theological aesthetics Mm. or the study of beauty. And it's hard because you'll get, you know, these long essays and and books and stuff about, ah, yes, beauty is this and beauty is that. And it, it it was difficult for me to engage with because it wasn't often wrapped in a narrative and a story and it wasn't all that concrete. And so it just kind of went over my head a lot of it. Uh, But it is true. Like, you know, beauty and longing for it is very much real. Um, it wasn't that what C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory. It's we we ache for beautiful things. We long to to be beautiful, and where we are intended for that um, in in heaven. So yeah, I love I love how you're grappling with that as an author because you know it's like you can be a beautiful princess who does not have a beautiful inside right, yet. Right. Um, the the complexity there, yeah. yeah. So Lauren, thank you so much for joining me. So I hope people um, are, are excited to read your book. And especially this is great timing because there's a cliffhanger at the end of Exile, uh, yeah. but Wandering is coming out so soon. What, wait, what, what oh, date yeah. is Wandering uh, coming it out? It will actually be released June 13th. So so very soon. I can't remember when I scheduled this episode, right. but very soon, very right. soon uh, <laughs> in relation to this uh, publishing. So, and it's, oh man, the, the things you do with the setting and the plot. Oh and characters in Wandering and uh, and the third, are, are we saying the, the title yeah, of the, the third? Yeah, the third book is uh, Promise. 
promise. But yeah, the things you do. Oh, it's just so exciting. <laughs> so so many wonderful things coming. So many scary things coming too. All all very exciting. Um, so where can people follow you on social media? Yeah. And then where can they go and get Exile and Wandering? Okay, so um, I I have a website that I should be doing more with. I haven't done enough with. Um, You're doing great. <laughs> it's coming along. I'm hoping to start a newsletter one of these days too, and we'll get onto that. So the, the website is lorebegins, so L-O-R-E begins.com. And then um, I'm on Instagram, uh, Lauren G. Warnamendi. You can put, <laughs> people have to check the spelling in the notes. Yeah, I'll link it in the show yeah. notes too. Uh, so that's Lauren G. Warnamendi. And then my Facebook page is um, Lauren G. Warnamendi author. If you find if you find the Warnamendi, you're probably going to be well on your way there. <laughs> yes, it's a it's a, a beautiful unique <laughs> last name, which I may or may not have misspelled. And uh, uh, yeah. we have to have to go there. Uh, <laughs> yes, and um, and where can we find Exile and Wandering to right. to buy them? The best place to buy them from is Bandersnatch Books, my publisher. Shout out, very thankful for them. So Bandersnatchbooks.com. Um, in fact, they're. Hmm, probably even yeah when this comes out so there's a bundle sale right now that you can you can get exile with a pre-order of wandering um for a little uh discount uh that sales on till at least it releases i think maybe even just a little past it releases but uh, yeah that's the best place because the royalties and and the amount that goes to bandersnatch is a lot higher than you can also find it on amazon and it's also uh, available on kindle through amazon so you can get a digital Excellent. version. Perfect. So yeah, definitely uh, go check them out. And yeah, take advantage of the bundle sale. Because right. if you're like me, you can't stand not knowing what happens. But when the book is new, you know, you have no choice. Right. But now you do because you can find wandering. <laughs> so you'll just have to, you know, know that um, you'll you can be excited for, for promise mm-hmm. as well. So Lauren, thank you so much. Well, thank you. And, um, thanks for joining everyone else. So join us next time to talk more about retelling fairy tales in the light of scripture.